Hey, greetings, everybody. Welcome into Mining Stock Daily. This is Trevor Hall, and you are listening to this week's long-form episode on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. It was a pretty busy week here. A lot of corporate updates, some market analysis. We had some economic data come in, which actually had, uh, unfortunately, some vol- provided some volatility in the metal sector everywhere from precious metals to base metals. We're going to talk about base metals in general and exploration mining first with Joe Mazumdar of Exploration Insights. Great conversation with, with Joe. We hadn't had him on since February. So we had a lot to catch up with with him. And then in our second segment, we turn big picture. We talk about a little bit of the macro and central banking with Bill Fleckenstein from Fleckenstein Capital. Uh, based out of Seattle, Bill's been on the show once before, but getting a general sense of why he continues to be bullish gold and really some of the mistakes he's seeing from central banks. So great conversation with Bill as well. This will be uh, the last episode for a couple of days, holiday week, next week here in the United States with the 4th of July. So we probably won't be back until midweek. So this will be the last episode for a number of days. Special thank you to Western Copper and Gold, Arizona Sonoran Copper, and Fireweed Metals for their continued support of the podcast and if you wouldn't mind press that like and subscribe on both the podcast networks and the new youtube channel on the mining stock daily youtube channel as well where we're starting to publish a lot of the corporate updates in these long-form episodes all right everybody let's jump into my conversation with joe have a wonderful weekend happy fourth of july be well Welcome into your first segment of this week's Mining Stock Daily Long Form episode. It's going to be an uber long episode because next week we're coming into the 4th of July holiday here in the United States. So it's going to be a very short week in the markets and in the podcast and the YouTube channel as well. Uh, First segment here, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about junior exploration, a little health check with that sector, and also a lot of time talking about copper. Happy to welcome in an old friend. Uh, Last time we talked to Joe Mazumdar of Exploration Insights was at the Roundup Conference earlier this year in February. A great conversation, one that I was really happy to have with with Joe. So we are going to not necessarily relive, but maybe reapproach this conversation. Uh, Joe, how have you been? Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for the invite. Uh, all good here. Uh, how's it going down there? Uh, you know what? Uh, summer's finally here. We had a. Lo- I think we took all of Vancouver's rain this spring in Colorado. Uh, so it sounds like we got more rain than oh. in Colorado than Vancouver. So you're welcome for that. Well, well, I noticed when I was down in uh, Nevada and Idaho and Oregon uh, about three weeks ago that the uh, that it was a lot greener, mm-hmm. especially in Nevada uh, than uh, than in, I'm used to. Yeah. Uh, traveling around there. Also, the amount of rain stopped me from getting to one project because of all the mud. Oh, really? So, I thought nothing stopped Joe yeah, from we, reaching a project. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had to pull that truck out, and then it was just, then we got stuck again, and then it was sort of like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you might have the thickest passport of anybody I've ever met in this sector. I assume you've been traveling quite a bit still this this year. Yeah, I'm sort of changing it a bit where I travel to a spot and then I try to do a few more trips because uh, the kids are a bit older, so uh, I can uh, prolong my visit and have less 
mm-hmm. like airport time uh, because logistically that's more of a hassle than actually being on the ground. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so let's kind of jump into it here, Joe. Uh, it, it's it's it, it's a rough market out there for for junior miners. A lot of companies there's a, and we've been talking about this over the last week or two on the podcast. There's this bifurcation going on where the big miners, the producers, are making moves in this market to set themselves up for the next 20, 30, 40 years. So that is all happening. While the riskier part of the sector, the junior sector, uh, we're seeing seeing 52-week lows. Uh, We're seeing capital that's hard to come by. And in fact, a lot of companies, I assume, are really struggling to keep the doors open right now. Uh, you know, in general sense, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty here, how are you approaching uh, this this sector right now? What are you observing? Well, if, if we keep to the mantra that uh, Explorations uh, Insights about is about trying to find companies with projects that somebody else would want to acquire because we're mostly dealing with juniors. I have a few companies in the portfolio that don't require, uh, you know, an M&A, but if we just focus in on the ones that do, so we go through all the process to f- make sure that it warrants, uh, it it passes all the red flags uh, with respect to, uh, you know, it doesn't have any uh, with respect to potentially finding a suitor. Um, the, the issue right now is actually, uh, you know, funding these programs. And uh, we've gone backwards, especially for precious metals, more so than maybe some uh, minerals we consider critical. And in terms of the critical mineral path, there seems to be a lot more financing for those projects, especially lithium. Uh, I was in a conference in Quebec City recently, well, just last week, mm-hmm. and there was a different, I mean, it was a stark difference between the lithium spodumene uh uh, explorers and the amount of capital they had and the gold explorers and what they were trying to do to uh, raise just a couple of million. Does this provide some direction for for speculators in this sector of, you know, where if you're looking for any sort of reward for your investment, uh, best to go look at a different metal than your typical, maybe a gold investor would typically look at? Well, I guess you you first frame it in terms of your investment horizon. So if your investment horizon is more than just 12 months, then, you know, you might want to rethink your commodity focus. Um, But still, I would say that on the exploration side, you know, grassroots, uh, a good drill, an excellent drill intersection in any commodity is, you know, basically it's agnostic. It'll still drive the stock up and it'll still attract capital. But I would say, you know, even over the last, uh, you know, five years or so, the amount of uh, retail sector funding of juniors is, is diminished. And in this kind of environment right now, it's even lower and such that people that work the prospect generator model that might have been disavowed several years ago when the capital was more plenty are, are now being looked at more seriously because they're attracting majors to fund them. And, uh, you know, being able to still produce uh, decent drill programs in this current environment. Yeah, Uh, it's interesting. I mean, it really is a major macro backdrop, I think, is the culprit for such a volatile sector in in exploration here. Uh, You know, the risk capital is it's void of risk capital, I guess you could say right now. 
And I'm just, you know, what what is it about the macro the macro here? I guess let me frame this differently, Joe. What? Why would somebody, if they had risk capital, why would they take a bunch of risk in junior exploration when they could go buy short-term treasury bills that guarantee yield in 5% in a couple months? Is that type of play taking away from the junior sector? I, I would say that, uh, you know, there, there is that, uh, you know, the, the retail sector, the aging of the retail sector and their movement to more, because uh, we get that from subscribers that have canceled, you know, hey, we love the letter, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I'm changing my portfolio and moving to lower risk uh, sort of focus. And uh, that might be dividend stocks. That it doesn't necessarily have to be treasuries. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, it, it, to more liquidity and uh, to less volatility, which is totally understandable. So we're really competing with the with with investors for that risky capital, you know, that might be going into cryptocurrencies or um, whatever marijuana, some, something else that uh, that people are looking for your perennial triple bagger, five bagger, whatever, and their capital is something that they're you know, go in with the knowledge that they might lose it all. That's the capital, the junior sector, the non-cash flowing junior sector is competing for. I think that entire pie of capital has been reduced. And now potentially there's a little bit more slices for other things. But I would say, you know, the the amount of news, you know, uh, headline news about critical minerals is definitely driving the bus for how uh, some lithium plays and some other plays uh, managed to access uh, capital uh, in, in current market conditions. Joe, does there remain to be um, over speculation or froth in critical minerals or lithium plays that there once was earlier this year, or has some of that come off? Well, well, I would say you know probably no, uh, it hasn't come off as much as you. If you were interested in the lithium sector and then you saw it, you know the lithium prices be one of the best performing commodities of 2022, and then when it dropped almost 60 percent, you know in the first uh, several months of 2023, then you were looking for value. Uh, you would have, you know, you wouldn't have had very many options because most lithium stocks didn't drop that much. And like, so at that conference, I've just went to, you know, I could go see, you know, a $1.5 billion Canadian uh, lithium play with no resource. I could see a 330 million market cap um, uh, lithium play uh, with uh, prior to having drilled a hole. Hmm. Uh, And then you take that, compare that to a copper play that's got a feasibility study you know, two strategic investors that own cumulatively 20% in it, cash, um, you know, and where there's few development copper plays around, uh, and that's trading at the same market cap as a lithium play that has yet to drill a hole. <laughs> what is causing this? This, div- I mean, I don't even know what he calls it. It's kind of ridiculous, Joe. I'm just going to say it. it's 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 ridiculous. But what's driving, what's yeah. driving this? Well, what's driving it is that, uh, you know, people are, you know, focused on critical minerals. They're getting all this uh, news about, you know, governments and uh, private equity and everybody else getting their foot into uh, lithium. 
you know, whether domestically or internationally, and a lot of money flowing into that uh, that commodity. Like we just recently heard, you know, China getting into a, I think over a billion dollar deal to get into the Salar de Uyuni in Bolivia, um, and um, yeah, it's 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 interesting times in terms of lithium sector. And when you get bombarded by that news, then there's always this fear of missing out, and then people are looking for the next one, you know, and the next one, and uh, uh, those ones that are over here are now, you know, being valued as if they were over there and so on and so forth, while other sectors are totally abandoned because somewhat because of the limited pie that we discussed before of uh, risk capital has basically gone to this one uh, more so than others. Uh, Copper is not on that list of U.S. critical minerals. Uh, I would argue it should be. And, and that's after they did a revaluation and, uh, you know, because a lot of, I believe, senators or congressmen asked them to relook at and the USGS did and they still came up with the same answer, which was not, which I still don't understand. I'd, I'd really like to see how they evaluate what's critical and what's not critical. Mm -hmm. uh, because if they take the global resources in the U.S. by itself, maybe they think that they have enough to feed their smelter capacity, which is limited. Um, but the problem is a lot of those resources as well, you know, are they actually going to get developed? Are they including things like Pebble, where a lot of people don't think it's going to be built? Are they including things like Resolution or whether it's the timing for Resolution, given that that's a project that's been around for about 25 years? So that would be uh, interesting to me to see how they actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, decide what's critical and what is not. Yeah. Um, so let's jump into let's jump into talking about Dr. Copper here, and I'd, I'd love to pick up the conversation you and I had back in February, Joe. It's it's interesting. I mean, there is uh, quite this uh, supply crunch going on in copper right now. However. <laughs> Uh, the the price action of the metal uh, is showing weakness once again. Uh, currently, I don't even know what we're trading at. About I think three seventy five a pound is the last I saw here. Um, obviously, Doctor Copper has been known to give us a lot of insights on the health of the of the global economy. Uh, that's one side of the narrative. The other side is the supply crunch going on, and I think I saw uh, stocks at fifteen year low. Uh, any other time in history, when you see 15-year low, you would expect copper prices to be absolutely out of this world, but it's not. Uh, what's going on here? How, how you know? How are you balancing uh, the, both sides of the narrative, Joe? Well, I would I would take this as an opportunity if you believe in the medium to long term, and I do with respect to the supply side, because that's not something you know, you could fly some copper in from Mars or something like that that's going to come in. The timelines are the timelines, the um, the risk factors in countries that are major producers like Chile and Peru are real. Um, uh, and, and right now the funding uh, is, is sort of on the shelf right now with respect to projects, um, even the brownfield projects. So on the supply side, I'm pretty confident it's not going to be there in the medium to long term. Then on the demand side, medium to long term, the question is how many EVs actually get, you know, uh, 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 produced? What is the penetration rate of, of electric vehicles? But more importantly, 
because uh, we don't talk about this as much because a lot of focus is on electric vehicles, but not so much on the electrification, uh, you know, green energy like, you know, solar, you know, and all battery storage, all this other stuff that requires infrastructure and copper is the infrastructure. Um, so in the medium to long term, battery technology can change and that element that you're looking at may not be used anymore because the price goes up and technology is not a constant. But the infrastructure part of copper is what I'm more confident in. So again, medium to long term confident on the supply situation being, uh, you know, being favorable for the price. On the demand side, yeah, there's issues medium to long term in terms of what I just said. But in the near term, the issue is that, you know, the, the rebound in the Chinese uh, economy is not as strong as people thought. And when people look at inventories, they got to realize there's visible inventories and there's inventories you don't know about. And so when I worked in the copper market, uh, you know, we had visible inventories of the London Medical Exchange, Shanghai, and we also had um, the COMEX. But also at that time, Cadelco was stockpiling, but they left that as visible so you could see. So visible inventories which was, was a bigger portion of total global inventories. The problem right now is there's a lot of inventories in manufacturers that we don't know about. And it's hard for us to gather how much is out there. So they hold these inventories. And when the market picks up, the first thing they do is use their own inventories before they go to the market. Other people, if they can't, you know, get those inventories or don't have them, then they will drive the global inventories down. Uh, you know, what we really, you know, I hate to f look forward to this, but, you know, back in the, uh, you know, the 2000s, you know, the, the market was teetering on, on an edge because the inventories, like you said, were low. But it took an event like a uh, big rock slide at Grasberg to take a significant amount of copper off of the market that pushed everybody into the market and slowly, you know, then copper went over a buck, you know, slowly rose over to two bucks because they knew that copper wasn't going to be there and everybody was scrambling. So what I see right now is that the M&A in copper is positive. I mean, there's a good trend there for people uh, acquiring assets, but right now they're acquiring producing assets. That's not going to change the supply of copper, but it's indicative to me that the sector knows there's an issue. Now what we need to see is some of these development plays get uh, get acquired. We need to see more funding of grassroots exploration. We need we need to see a lot more of that. You know, and that will happen, I believe. But right now I, I'm still positive on copper long term, medium to long term, and I'm also uh, uh, you know the signs in terms of MA are good if if not the copper price. Uh, I you know, obviously, South America is the largest producer and exporter of copper. And we go from Chile to Peru to Argentina. I, I'd like to ask ask you about Argentina here, um, because uh, it, it's it, lots of exploration happening in uh, along that Chilean border right now. And, yeah. and I don't necessarily yeah. want to. You know, we can talk about. You know, obviously, I'm just looking at NGEX has made a new yeah. all-time high today as we speak, which is very fascinating, while the copper price is down. But I actually want to ask you more of a geopolitical question because there is an important election happening in Argentina, and Argentina has yeah. been a, kind of a political basket case for <laughs> my entire life. However, I, like, yeah. how closely are you watching this election? What potentially does it mean for the mining 
uh, mining sector in that country? Well, what you got to understand is that, you know, uh, Argentina, this is a federal election coming up. But, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, how they do it federally in terms of infrastructure and how to uh, basically make it easier for people to, uh, you know, uh, 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 with the tax breaks and uh, capital flow and that, that's what the federal government can do. But the federal government cannot make... uh, like exploring in a certain state or a province of Argentina any easier. So let's say the federal government becomes right and uh, they they want more foreign direct investment and they love mining, they love oil and gas, they want to attract more investment. Uh, uh, but, but that's not going to make it easier for, let's say, Pan-American silver to, uh, to, uh, to, to get a permit to build Navidad in Chubut. That's not going to happen. It's not going to make it any easier for anybody to do anything in the province of Mendoza. Like, no matter what kind of government we've had, Santa Cruz has always been a good state uh, in terms of mining, San Juan, Salta, and Jujuy. So we've seen M&A in the lithium sector uh, in northwest Argentina, regardless of the, uh, the who's who's been running the country. So... Mm. I, I don't put as much weight uh, on 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 the federal election as maybe some other people because really at the province level nothing changes. Uh, it just makes the tax, uh, you know, and people looking to come into Argentina, you know, uh, who don't have assets there already. Uh, that that's important. Um, yeah. uh, but for for other things in terms of development, it's really a province to province thing, and, and I don't think that's going to change. Uh, how about the other side of the border into Chile? They uh, elected a, a very a very young president. Um, and when I was there visiting Vizcachitas a couple months ago, uh, one of the things that I was told was like maybe uh, this man couldn't be as far left as he originally ran on. Uh, then the next day, yeah. literally while I was there, they they ran on that uh, the lithium. Uh, national, well, not yeah. I mean, for lack of a better term, nationalization, kind of replicating what they did with yeah. Delco. Uh, so, you know, is there potential that maybe that uh, far left fears from the mining sector in Chile are subdued, or is there still quite a bit of concern of unknown of what's going to happen there regarding the copper sector? Well, I mean, definitely with foreign direct investment in, in lithium, uh, that's going to be problematic. That might not impact, it will not impact the uh, lithium supply in the near term because the major producers like uh, SQM, Sokomich, uh, and, um, and Albemarle have leases. Uh, uh, granted, SQM's is, you know, expires sooner, I think 2030, whereas the other one is past 2040. That's not going to change production from the Slardy Atacama for those two you know, for another seven years and for the other one, uh, um, you know, more than a decade. Mm. But for people that want to come in and explore like people are doing in Argentina, that it will make a lot more capital go to Argentina and other places rather than, uh, and then probably back into your spot, you mean dikes and stuff like that in northern Quebec or other places rather than fund brine exploration in uh, in Chile. That'll definitely happen and it's probably already happened. Um, with respect to the uh, the problem is is probably the contagion domestically as to hey you know this lithium nationalization thing looks pretty good why don't we try copper again 
when they already have a state-owned company. The problem is the state-owned company doesn't have enough capital to build all these projects. And if you start taking things away from people, you know, they're reluctant to invest. And so my big indicator there in terms of Chile is to find out what Freeport does with the El Abra expansion. Hmm. And so Cerro Verde was expanded and both those projects when I worked for Phelps Dodge were solvent extraction electro winning. So they're looking at the uh, enriched blanket. Uh, when copper prices were lower, those were the grades that made sense. But copper prices went up, such that now they're mining the lower grade sulfide. That requires a mill, and then you produce concentrates. They did that at Cerro Verde in Peru, and they were looking at doing the same thing in El Abra in Chile. However, uh, Freeport has sat on its hands a bit, waiting to see what this new uh, tax uh, regime would look like. Uh, that's out now. And uh, I'm sure they've crunched the numbers, but they have yet to make a decision whether, from what I know, uh, whether they're going to build that or not. And that's a multi-billion dollar investment. And when we look at copper supply and demand fundamentals, you know, a lot of people may have modeled this coming in as if it was going to happen and they were investing now. But, you know, that's already been delayed more than a year. So, um, you know, it's bullish for the copper price, but not so bullish for Chile. Yeah. Uh, I, one of the th topics I really wanted to ask you is about Rio Tinto's Newton technology. Um, yeah. I have been waiting. I was waiting anxiously to see which company that Rio Tinto part partnered with, with Newton, was going to come out with the first you know preliminary results. Uh, partners of the pod, Arizona Sonoran Copper, who I know uh, you follow closely, published uh, some of those preliminary results, early met results from that, from the data uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was. Uh, and, and obviously preliminary, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Arizona Sonoran's not jumping out and trying to put economics on it whatsoever, but it, it was promising. And that was the first sort of data set from Newton that I saw. Uh, it looked pretty good, Joe. And I'm just kind of curious what you know, what you saw from that data set and, you know, what this really means for other partners that Newton is working with down the road. And does this really have potential to be a big disruptor of copper supply down the road? Uh, potentially. Like I've worked with new technologies in copper extraction when I worked for Phelps Dodge, like leaching of concentrates and avoiding smelters. The whole idea here is to avoid smelters and produce cathode locally. Mm -hmm. That's the big deal. And since just erosionally and where we are in the world and how much we've mined of oxide and enriched, there's much less of, uh, of, of deposits that are amenable to the traditional solvent extraction electrowinning. That's basically what this is trying to do, like a heap leach. But what it's using is uh, uh, bacteria that love sulfides. They love pyrite, basically. And by them consuming pyrite, they basically oxidize uh, the, uh, the ore, the copper ore. But there's only, there's a range of types of copper assets that have that kind of pyrite in them. And that's why they always test mm -hmm. metallurgically each deposit before they do the initial um, uh, equity stake. And then they do a preliminary which is what they just released with Arizona Sonora. But this is really preliminary, and I don't put much weight on any of the results just because 
the columns that they tested were about half the height of the ones Arizona Sonora uses for their, you know, uh, PFS pre-feasibility study network. What I want to see is replicating those kind of columns. And what you need is that kind of, uh, you know, how long does it take to leach? And, and to get an 80% recovery, something like that for copper, that would be a boom. That would be saying, wow, now this looks pretty interesting because you're – because you're say 80% and then maybe I can get 90% into a concentrate, you know, or something like that, 88 to 90% of concentrate. But the problem is that then I have to pay freight, ship that concentrate to wherever, which is usually Asia. And then I have to pay my treatment and refining charges, which could be anywhere from 15 to, if it's really bad, 30% of the copper price. So when you do the math, what recovery would give you that kind of return without the freight, without the TCRCs mm. and everything like that. And is it a wash? That's where, that's your starting point. You know, uh, right now they're not there in terms of Arizona Sonora, but Newton's got the same thing with uh, McEwen mining. They're trying to test it there. They've signed an agreement with uh, Regulus up in uh, for the Anticori project. But what you got to really know is that this technology is right now just for copper. So if you've got a porphyry that's got the pyrite that can make the, back, the, you know, the bacteria happy, keep them alive, um, then your problem is that, you know, that gold that you have or potentially the molly, definitely the silver, you might not get any of that. So if you work in copper equivalents, just think copper until they start showing recoveries for byproducts because right mm -hmm. now I haven't seen any of that and I don't think you get that. In Arizona Sonora, they do have some molly, but they don't have a big credit right now uh, and they don't even produce a molly resource as far as I'm aware. So that's what you want to look at. So you're, in terms of breaking, you know, uh, you know, breakthrough, yes, but for certain types of deposit, it can't. It's not a one size fits all. It is definitely not a one size fits all. Very interesting, and thank you for the other side. That's something I, I hadn't thought of. But the recoveries alone, I mean, so you would like to see, generally, with the technology, something like eighty to eighty percent of recovery. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, eighty percent. Then I'm like, great. Let's do it. But we got to understand from the Arizona Sonora point of view, the sulfide's not even being considered as part of their right. economics right now. Yep. It's all upside. Right. And right now to do the concentrate, if, if they ever do it, which wouldn't be till, let's say, year six plus, uh, you know, uh, where's the copper price going to be there, you know, at that time? You know, and at that time, maybe just uh, having a run of, you know, having a mill producing a concentrate at that time might make sense. Right now it doesn't um, in terms of the uh, capital input required, operating costs and everything like that. And it's all underground. Yeah. So right now I don't think that makes sense for them. And they put it out that it probably doesn't. And they haven't drilled enough of the sulfide to know how much is out there to get. Because usually when you're looking for a, you know, a oxide enriched, once you get into the sulfide, you stop drilling. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, all the old holes they have don't help them. Uh, speaking of Arizona Sonoran, uh, Ivanhoe Electric is exploring the same deposit down dip uh, there in Arizona. Robert Friedland was on Bloomberg this week, basically claiming he's going to be a gazillionaire 
what the copper price. Oh, he is uh, it all. He is it already. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> oh, I think he's only a billionaire now. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it was it was pretty interesting. I mean, he was obviously uh, very bullish on the copper price. You have to be. He's always been. Uh, yeah. And uh, but it was interesting. He, he was calling a co- copper's heading for a train wreck here, b- based on the supply demand. Now, some of the the presentation he was giving on Bloomberg, you know, uh, I've seen enough Robert Freeland to know, you know, he, he was kind of had this sly grin on his face, and I somewhat appreciate that a little bit actually, given how successful he's been. Uh, but you know, he really put it out there. You know, in, a, in the back of my mind, Joe, I'm also thinking, listen, the Rick Rule has always taught us the solution for high prices is higher prices. And at some yeah. point, if copper is going to go higher in the long term, there's going to be something to bring it to bring it down. Um, I don't I, maybe this new Newton isn't it. Maybe it's a oversupply of copper coming from so much capital hitting uh, projects to get developed. Um, but and we're nowhere close to that. <laughs> we're no, we're no, nowhere close to that. But we got to no, start. No, we're not. And, and- yeah, but the we got to start thinking that, that way. Development timelines. Was, we look at the development timelines, we're talking 15 to 20 years of, from knowing a project, from actually discovering it to potentially getting it into construction, just thinking that everything works. Not like hey, a trilogy where you spend five years trying to permit a road and then you get the permit, then a year and a half later they take it away. Right. That can't happen. You know, uh, resolution, I think I've told you this before, like when I worked as an analyst for Phelps Dodge, we had it coming in at 2010. It's now 2023. Uh, it's closer, but I don't know closer to what. So, yeah, so I, I think he's absolutely correct with respect to being focused on copper. And it's through his, you know, uh, investments, work, uh, and his team uh, that the DRC, the Congo, is competing with Peru to be the second biggest producer of copper, partly because Peru has come backwards, but, you know, also because the DRC with Kamoa Kakula has, has taken such a large step forward. And that's without any major Western company producing copper in the DRC. First Quantum pulled out and Freeport pulled out already. And I don't see much, many more people going in yet. Uh, so that's basically mostly Ivanhoe uh, mines that's doing this. There, but there does seem to be a little bit of geopolitical interest from east and west in DRC right now. Because I, uh, I have a good friend who's from DRC. He's very much interested in what's going on in the mining uh, sector, although that's not necessarily where he works. But he said that every, every time I talk to him, he's like, the Chinese are doing this. Yet on the other next time I talk to him, the U.S. is doing this in the DRC. And it's yeah, it's quietly this tug of war is quietly going on the DRC between the east and west, and it's not making a whole lot of news headway here. But it is if you if you if you look closely, you will notice that it is kind of a um a middle you know a, a big ground for where resources are going to come from between the two. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I absolutely agree. So I was in Ndab in South Africa in February. Uh, and uh, in November of last year, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State for the U.S., uh, he was in the DRC in Zambia trying to do a, a bilateral agreement there. And so that's what the U.S. is doing, is trying to do a lot of these bilateral agreements, trying to uh, get the copper and the cobalt that they require. Uh, 
um, and you know Zambia and uh, the DRC have quite a bit of the uh, Central African copper belt, and some of the, those deposits obviously have a lot of cobalt. So there is interest, but the DRC uh, is wary of both sides. So the Chinese investment that has been you know been there for a while helped them with infrastructure. Now they want them to pay it back, whereas their loans from the West, a lot of those were forgiven. So they have that issue. They also have an issue with, uh, you know, artisanal mining by by the Chinese in their country. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really catching a lot of the locals uh, offside. Uh, and so there is some kind of animosity there. And now, um, you know, the U.S. government has to make the DRC basically very appealing for Western com companies like like Freeport, First Quantum, what have you, to come back in to the DRC, they got to provide some assurances and and provide some investment in terms of the infrastructure, the same kind of infrastructure that the Chinese have built. Um, and Zambia, I think, is probably a better spot with respect to companies coming in because I do when I went to Zambia uh, last year in uh, October or something like that. Uh, there, there, there was definitely a lot more companies there hmm. working. I mean, there's that new company uh, that uh, Bill Gates uh, sponsored, um, uh, Cobalt, yes. yep. that just IPO'd, and I think over a billion. They bought an asset right on the border of the DRC in Zambia, a copper asset for 150 million bucks. So they're quite active. Uh, I think they've hired most of the PhDs uh, that are employable uh, in, in the Western world. So, uh, so, but uh, yeah, so, so yeah, so we're seeing a lot more activity. Definitely. We are definitely seeing a lot more activity, especially uh, with Peru being the way it is and Chile maybe being a bit, uh, you know, uh, negative right now in terms of potential creeping nationalism. Zambia has sort of turned the corner with its new president, you know. I know that the DRC and Zambia are talking more about sharing infrastructure and everybody and their dog is talking about building battery infrastructure locally. But I mean, it's impossible that, uh, I mean, Zambia and the DRC need so much basic infrastructure like roads and ports and electricity that um, I don't know how they get to where they want to get to without having that basic. If they could get the ports, if they can get the roads and they get the power, that would be good enough for, for most mining companies. Joe, uh, one last question, because I'd be dismissed if I didn't ask you about gold, gold exploration right now. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your subscribers are <laughs> chiming in, asking you questions. Uh, gold equities, especially on the junior side, are, are really beat up. The name of the game of investing is to buy low and sell high. So, uh, you know, if you're not buying right now when nobody else is, is there a better opportunity now or, or, or is there just too much unknown to start deploying cash into the gold equities? So I have done a few private placements in gold and some in gold in Mexico with the mining forms oh, wow. in place uh, just because I think that's not a bad spot. And if you got the land, you know, great. And, you know, and then the most important thing is people with experience in that environment you know that's the important thing and know the rules the regulations and how to manage in that uh in, in that climate the uh, yeah so i i would say yes in terms of uh you know uh, uh everyone being very negative on gold this is where you can definitely get the right people the right asset at a discount 
that's definitely the case, uh, more so than probably some other assets. But, you know, that's sort of also tracking to copper as well. Uh, but uh, but definitely for gold and silver, especially since there's not a lot of silver dominant projects. And if we've got problems in Peru and Mexico, you know, those are the two of the bigger silver producers around. Um, so, uh, you know, that that's another issue with respect to that precious metal. Yeah. Okay. Joe, th- hey, uh, thanks for your time. I really appreciate you doing this. Good to connect once again. Uh, before we let you go, let everybody know where they can find you and Exploration Insights, maybe uh, inquire about a subscription. It's one of the best newsletter out there right now. I mean, it actually has always been one of the best newsletters. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, I, I got remarked by uh, by the the fellow I bought this from, Brent Cook, that a lot of people don't know I write a newsletter, so he says you've got to plug it more. <laughs> so so here you go. It's explorationinsights.com, weekly uh, publication on uh, on the mining sector and what I'm buying, what I'm selling, and a lot of thematics. And like uh, Trevor was saying, a lot of my site visits. Uh, there's some free material on there, so you get a you know an idea of what we do. Uh, and also, uh, uh, you know, follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Joe Mazumdar or at Exploration Insights and you'll find uh, some of our stuff that we post with the interviews. I just did a, an article for the assay, the one-to-one uh, mining assay magazine on critical minerals that uh, people can get access to. All right, awesome. Joe, thanks so much. Have a great rest of your week. All right, everybody, we are back here on our second segment of this week's long-form episode on Mining Stock Daily. We're going to focus on uh, really the big picture thing here and happy to welcome back uh, somebody I've admired from a distance. Uh, he is the man over at Fleck Capital, and he also co-hosts an incredible podcast called The End Game with Grant Williams. Happy to welcome back in Mr. Bill Fleckenstein. Bill, welcome to the podcast. How you been? I've been fine, and uh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, uh, is, is summer is. Tr- I assume summer is treating you well. Are you uh, uh, a void of the heat? Well, in Seattle, uh, the People's Republic of Seattle, where I reside, um, a lot of times summer doesn't begin until like mid-July or August. We've been lucky this year. June's been quite quite nice. So yes. Oh, very good, very good. Well, I think we've gotten a lot of that rain that Seattle usually gets. We get that in Colorado all of a sudden. We've had wow. monsoon season here. Better uh, you. <laughs> Let's jump into it, Bill. Listen, uh, there's a there, there, there's a number of directions we can take this, but uh, this conversation. But we are recording this Thursday morning, and so I think it's just best to kind of jump on some of the big data. The big data point that was published this morning: jobless claims came in. Uh, it's uh, it was decreased. It's uh, at least since 2021. Uh, the bond market is making moves off this news and obviously the stock market is kind of making moves but precious metals are they start to fall into the floor before we get in a buy here um i mean this is kind of a big picture thing here where we talked about for the last year and a half you know this in these increased rates from the federal reserve trying to tamper down demand we can have the argument that there will be more based on some of this data, but then we can continue to have the conversation that, well, the higher they increase, the more likely something is to break. 
I'm just kind of curious in general to start the conversation. How are you approaching all this? What are you seeing in the economy that would continue to allow the Fed to continue to inter- to increase interest rates here before maybe they start an official pause or even do we say cut? Well, first of all, what you have to know is the guy, the people at the Fed really don't know anything. Now, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic when I say it that way, but if you look at the reverence with which what they say is treated, whether it's a speech um, or, or the minutes or, or, or whatever it is, they are treated as though they are infallible and uh, omniscient. Um, when in fact, the reason we're kind of in the predicament that we're in now is because of their, their mistakes. Um, you know, uh, I wrote a book uh, that was published in 08 called uh, Greenspan's Bubbles, the Age of Ignorance at the Federal Reserve. And what I hoped to do, what I had hoped at the time would come of that, what people would realize how dangerous the FOMC was in, in, in its ability to warp and change things. So fast forward and giving the cliff notes from 30,000 feet, we had a stock bubble was precipitated by Greenspan being too easy. The Y2K money blew the top off. Then we had a recession. They panicked over that. They started doing the same thing they'd done before. We created a real estate bubble. Anyone with an ounce of brains could see that both of those were bubbles. I went on TV and talked and wrote quite a bit about it at the time, trying to warn people of you know what the dangers were. In fact, I gave a speech uh, in, in downtown Seattle, and it made it was the front page above the fold headline news that you know hedge fund manager says real estate can 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 decline or some stupid headline like that. The point was that's how drunk people were; they didn't think the price of real estate could go down. Of course, Greenspan helped create that when he you know he and Bernanke kind of helped foment the real estate bubble. I don't want to litigate that, but the point is. When that burst, they got even crazier with QE. And then and then they said they were going to take it back, and they never did. And then we had the repo problem, and they started it back up again in, in 18, 18, 19, late 18, early 19. And then, of course, we had the, the um, 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 uh, coronavirus slash uh, lockdowns, and they did it again. And then they kept on doing it and they never took it back and they said inflation was going to be transitory and now everyone wants to act like these people are without blame for any of the misallocations of capital in addition to that when they kept doing when they when they've done that they've allowed the government to kick the can so we've been able to run these massive deficits and there's never any there's never any pain associated with that we haven't used any of the time in the last 10 or 15 years to get at the entitlement programs, which I'm sure everyone's seen clips of, of Stan Druckenmiller's talk about, you know, how that's going to engulf us in the next decade. And it will mean, I've got to get something for you here. Um, these, these, these guys at the fed were cheering on inflation. I'm going to read you something that I clipped out of the FT. This was July of 2019 headline. Powell seeks a cure for the disease the disease of low inflation. Now, does anyone with an ounce of brains actually think that low inflation is a problem? No one does. Nobody wants inflation. And yet these 
central bankers, not just the Fed, but the other knuckleheads too, decided that 2% was the magic number we had to have. And that was not in the Fed charter. They just made it up. And one of the quotes he said, um, we've seen it in Japan. We're now seeing it in Europe. And that's why we think it's so important that we defend our 2% inflation goal here in the United States. And we're committed to doing that. Okay. What, they, what, they, what they've said they've seen is deflation. Well, what deflation is, is productivity, technological tools. Who's against that? What they, what they mean when they say deflation is depression, right? They associate deflation with depression because in depressions you do have deflation. But they have, they have bastardized these terms that are always yapping about deflation being bad. And it's not, it's not bad. And if it, unless it comes with an economic train wreck. But um, um, it's not something we face because their fear of that is exactly why they keep repeating these irresponsible policies. So I got off on that tangent because I'm trying to, I'm trying to make it clear that these people have all this credibility and they don't deserve any of it. So the, um, if we didn't have all the central banks in the G7 countries we're not doing the same thing to various degrees, we would have a problem with the currency. But since they're all doing variations of the same thing, except you know, perhaps maybe in Japan, they're gonna end yield curve control. I happen to think they will end it this year. Um, but, but, but in any case, so <clears throat> the policies are set to cause your currency to depreciate against goods and services. That's what, really what inflation is. I'm not talking about necessarily a dollar FX crisis because it's hard to have a crisis when everyone else is just as bad as you are. Um, that's not to say the dollar can't decline and slide. And if the yen were to rally because the Japanese ended white, white uh, yield curve control, you might see a weak dollar. But anyway, the point is I'm trying to set the stage for the, the, the number one economic problem we have in this country, I believe, is the Fed in terms of the distortions that they cause and the ability that they have to allow the government to kick the can and keep spending beyond its means until we get to the moment in time when we have to deal with it, and then it'll be too big to deal with. So I don't mean uh, to be a tinfoil hat type of, you know, the Fed's doing this. and all. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the economic consequences, direct and indirect, of their policies. So you asked me, I can't remember what, what question you asked me. <laughs> I'll it. Uh, general uh, approach. General yeah, approach. About, about the fact that Bill Dudley was being slightly honest about a potential bond train wreck. Well, right. we can easily have a bond train wreck because we have so much debt to finance. We got to refill up the Treasury general account. So, you know, how that plays out and, and how much has been discounted, I don't know. But I, I suspect there will be trouble in Treasury bonds. Uh, until such time as we have some sort of financial market accident or economic or, or, or stock or, or um, financial market accident or economic data softens. Yeah. Uh, so Bill Dudley, you, uh, you just quickly mentioned he's the uh, former Federal Reserve Bank of New York uh, president. Uh, he wrote this, this this op-ed in Bloomberg, which was published this morning, and he said, the economy is still strong, labor market extraordinarily tight and inflation stubbornly high. The Fed Reserve will probably be taking short-term interest rates higher for longer. Uh, obviously, the economic data we got out from the jobless claims obviously supports that. There's a revised GDP up to 2%. Let me stop you there because okay. <laughs> we're, 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 we're engaged in driving, looking in the rearview mirror. Right. Employment is a lagging indicator. 
Now, some might argue it's coincident, and some facets of it might be more coincident than others. Um, and but but the employment data also has the, the birth death model, which is a which is the the BLS's attempt to figure out business formations and things like that. It can be wildly inaccurate. Mike Green made a good point on a recently um, about the the fact that the where we are in the current business cycle is skewed unusually to more white collar layoffs than blue collar layoffs. Sure. Blue collar layoffs uh, are, are more likely to end up with somebody claiming unemployment. Whereas if you were making a quarter of a million dollars at Google with stocks and options, you're probably not going to file for unemployment claims to make 500 bucks a week. So I think the claims data is not representative of what's really going on. And the employment data itself is skewed with the birth death model and, and assumptions like that. I, I don't, tr- you know, I, it's, it's essentially a made up number. I mean, they don't make it up. I don't mean to say that they just live, but it's, it's contrived. And that's why you see all these revisions as you, as you go forward in time. So there's this huge fascination or infatuation with the employment data because that's what the Fed's looking at. And I just gave you my rant about looking at the Fed. So all this is wrongheaded. The economy is slowing down. There are employment problems in some places and there aren't in others. We have this out of control government spending, which hasn't mattered for two and a half decades, which is how it got so out of control. But now we're getting into really gargantuan numbers and we're going to be dealing with uh, an environment where, you know, all the big buyers of the past five years are liable to be absent. So it's, it's liable. It's going to be a problem. I think earnings for the market, sorry, for companies to report in Q3, there's going to be some pressure. It's a little different in the last now versus the last 20, 25 years in that inflation can help companies make numbers. So sometimes they're making the numbers and it's really not anything organic like it had been for the prior two decades. Anyway, right. uh, to, to, to be all focused on, on employment data as the only thing you're going to trade, to me, seems rather short-sighted. On the other hand, if you're a trader and that's what they're trading, you got to you got to play that game if that's what you do. Yeah. Let me open up an idea here, Bill, and, and you can tell me if I'm way off kilter here or not. But there's this discrepancy. If we talk about jobs in the United States, there's this discrepancies. You mentioned the white collar jobs, the tech jobs. Those are what we're seeing the biggest number of layoffs here. Uh, and pragmatically, and I'll be honest with you, like I was surprised. I was driving to Denver International Airport the other day and along I-70. Uh, in the industrial area of town, there was a sign. People, they're looking to hire like HVAC technicians, and they put $250,000 a year up on this big billboard. That's damn good money. That's damn good money. So obviously, the blue-collar positions, I mean, the, those are there's a lot of openings in those types. But does this represent, and I'm trying to think back. We've had conversation the last couple of weeks where somehow we need to go back from producing financial mechanics to actually producing things, goods. Are we starting to slowly see that rotation at all? Or is that, you know, way down the road yet? I think there is a definite increased demand for people to make things. Particularly, I think that's also associated with the um, supply line changes that are, that are coming in the wake of COVID and, uh, or friction with China nowadays. So I think there'll be more, 
those kinds of jobs, and obviously not directly for HVAC, but if you're going to build a new plant, you need HVAC. And so it all kind of rolls into one. Um, <clears throat> yes. So I think there are more opportunities in various blue collar type jobs than there might be in certain quote unquote white collar jobs. Um, but um, the, 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 the way past business cycles have gone, the layoffs have hit the lower paying jobs earlier. And that's been the deterioration that you've seen in the in employment data with a long leg. And that's what the Fed's looking at. Not really cognizant of the fact that that data is not very good and particularly doesn't fit this current cycle. Because we've seen with a lot of these tech companies where all that massive hiring went on um, during the um, lockdowns. And uh, now there've been a lot of cutbacks there. Microsoft, you know, Google, Facebook, all these companies, their stock prices are soaring, are also announcing, have not announced a lot of layoffs. Now, maybe all those people will go get new jobs and they'll be at the same salary level. I, I kind of doubt that. But anyway, I'm just saying there's a different wrinkle in the, in the labor force than we've seen in the prior, in the business cycles of the last uh, 20, 25 years. Okay. The, uh, I think the four of the heads of federal banks were in Portugal this week. And I, not to dive into every single thing they said verbatim, but they did mention a lot of them said the biggest surprise that they've had is their, the resiliency they see in their own economies. Uh, resiliency, I think, is a pretty far stretch because they all printed so much money. We're still seeing right. some of that work off. I mean, do we need to be cognizant that resiliency just means that that money is still in the work? Well, I think um, when they printed as much as they did for as long as they did, they warped things and created such misallocation of capital. They created also a lot of inflation. And so we haven't had a business cycle that was ended due to trying to fight inflation that was here and real, you know, really since the 70s, uh, you know, late 70s, uh, which ended, you know, with, with, with Volcker finally knocking down inflation. Um, so I, I don't, I, I just, I, I think that they don't understand that either. Therefore, the, the, the data looks a little different. Like normally I accuse them of being irresponsible on the easy side. Right now, I think they're, 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 they're um, wedded to hiking rates when, I, when I'm not so sure that's exactly the right policy right now. It could be, you know, um, but they've hiked a lot and obviously the market's still strong. But again, the stock market isn't the same stock market that it was even 15 years ago. The market, because of what the how the, the behavior modification that took place along the way with all the money printing in the last 25 years, when you couple that with the market share that the, the passive retirement investing has, that's Vanguard and BlackRock that take the retirement date tar, target funds and just invest the money. You know, that's 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 50 percent plus or minus of, of daily flows. And so that's why you see all these stories about, well, seven stocks are carrying the market. And, you know, the market cap of the, those seven is out of some huge number, the entire S&P. I mean, gargantuan number. I don't remember off the top of my head. So the, 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 the markets have become warped by all of the prior QE and the and, 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 and what the passive bid does the stock prices. So the, stock, so the Fed is saying, well, the employment report's not getting weak fast enough. I've talked about how that's distorted. 
the stock market's hanging on. Well, that's because of it's a mechanical process that doesn't have anything to do with the market looking down the road. And it retains a speculative element, and that's because of what the Fed, you know, did and and, and caused a whole generation of people to speculate like crazy or, uh, uh, in the uh, in 20 to 22 period. So they're looking at things that, that, that they have kind of warped and not looking at the environment. I think to it may may we may need to hike more. It's just not clear to me they need to do it now. Inflation is coming down. I think the inflation problem is going to be with us. They're not going to eradicate it. We're not going back to 2% prospectively. So if they were really worried about that, um, then, 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 then hiking more probably makes sense. We saw a story, you've probably read them too, about, you know, there were a lot of very, very wealthy people that got bailed out. When, if it would have run its course of liquidation, arguably 90 90 cents on the dollar would have flown would have flowed back to those investors um they shouldn't have bailed that entity out so then that created an injection of easing to some degree it's not quite it's not qe but it's it, it had it had a, a monetary impulse that it wouldn't have had if they'd allowed the the allowed it to go bust and work things out and there would have been more ramifications um you know that problem also goes back to the fed the fed was encouraging these People to you know uh, you know they they, they, they they you know with the, the, they're going to keep rates low for a long time, and they didn't do a good job of monitoring the banks to see what kind of trouble they were getting in buying um, you know financing their their uh, bond portfolio uh, that might have a seven to ten year duration with overnight funds. So again, they broke that, and then they turned around and bailed it out. Um, I think that was largely political, but that's neither here nor there. So now something else has to break and something will break and then we'll see what they do. Well, and that's, and I think that's what uh, Dudley was saying in this op-ed is like something is, a, will continue to break. And there's a lot of speculation out if there'll be more fallout from the regional banking system that we saw from SVB and First Republic and, and the like. Um, curious your thoughts there, but also there's a lot of speculation uh, with the loans that will uh, uh, be revalued with corporate real estate. And so there's a lot of headlines about concern about that. Uh, the contrarian to me thinks that the more the concern is, the less likely it's going to happen. But at the same time, you can't lie with the numbers. How are you approaching these headlines? And, in, 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 you know, what are your thoughts on corporate real estate? Well, I, I think that th- those are slow fuse type problems. So, I mean, I think that's something that people could get in trouble over saying, well, we all know about it. It hasn't mattered yet, so it won't matter. Well, sometimes that's true. But in the case of commercial real estate, they're slow fuses and they're, they're one building at a time, right? They all have their own, their own you know, loan covenants and things like that. So the credit market has fuses. You know, you have coupon payments to make. You have maturities. you got to roll the debt, you know. You may be paying 5% as a corporate entity on your debt, but when that debt comes due, if you don't pay it off, you want to roll it, you might have to pay eight. So there's all there's a whole bunch of potential things that could trigger the avalanche that are just sitting there on the hills, you know, just sitting there. I don't know what might be, but there's a, there are a lot of there are a lot of things like that, that that could go wrong. And I think it's easy to think, well, they haven't gone wrong yet, so they won't. Well, 
I would remind you that it was March of 2008. Prior to the collapse, when Ben, Ber Bank ben Bernanke said subprime was contained and that he had not even begun yet to metastasize. And he was the head of the Fed and the Fed was in charge of regulating the banks. So he didn't know that. So he, he could have, you know, and then you so you could have walked around for a while and said, well, see, he knows that and it's not a problem. Well, it took a while for it to become a problem. And then we almost lost the entire financial system. All right. And it so, was it was just to, just today. Another news headline was there was some stress test done. I don't know if it was by the Treasury or by the Fed that the banking system is healthy enough to withstand a severe recession. Yeah, well, that it, it might be healthy from a credit standpoint. I don't know, but I mean, obviously, there's a lot of there's going to continue to be the slow disintermediation from the from the financial system as long as rates uh, short rates are so much higher in money funds than they are in at, at, you know at, at the banks. And of course, if the banks want to raise their rates to keep the money there, then they're impinging their impinging on their profitability and their capital. So they're kind of they're kind of in a heads I win, tails I lose situation. Right, uh, Bill. I wanted to ask you about China, and I know you you talk to a lot of people that are you know really smart and have know the inner workings of what's going on in that country. There's there was a lot about you know three or four months ago when China reopened. There was a there was a lot of speculation that this was it. You know. China's going to just rage back. Uh, money's going to be flowing everywhere. But that rebound really has been lacking. Uh, and they also talk about, uh, you know, them stimulating once again. And even that didn't do much uh, for the Chinese economy. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on, you know, on China kind of being that linchpin to getting global growth back and coming? Is it necessary or isn't even going to happen? Well, I try never to have a big opinion about China because it's too easy to be wrong. You know, it's a little bit like Russia. How do you know what data and news you're supposed to trust? I don't trust their news organizations and I don't trust ours. So it's hard to get at what's going on. Um, um, I think the reopening where people were excited about it, I think, has been a bit of a bust. And uh, um, I think part of it could be because they're dealing with the hangover from all the real estate speculation an infrastructure that, that they that they put up and uh, you know that's just my guess like i said don't pay close attention to it just because i don't want to make decisions based on it when i know my data is no good um so uh but obviously if it was going to have a potent impact it would have i don't you know the price of copper and oil just to pick two are down from when that happened so mm -hmm. i would argue that whatever's whatever is taking place is not all that potent right well i think i think copper is definitely screaming Weakness, economic weakness. Or, I, I yeah, especially when you give it, especially when you consider the demand that the the uh, ESG green um, 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 programs require. Right, right. Yeah. How about the commodities complex? What's what's jumping out at you here, other than you know, Doctor Copper screaming at me, economic weakness, oil can't get out of its own way. What's it telling you? Uh, I, I I think. I, again, I, I don't, I don't know that commodities are particularly good leading indicators. They might be good coincident indicators, maybe at, at a turn and inflection point that if they if they break for no good reason, that'll that'll give you a heads up. Right now, I don't think there's that much information. Um, people are bearish in, uh, on commodities generically. Um, it's been an asset class, so to speak, uh, that hasn't done very well, uh, except for you know, you know, fits and starts. 
uh, relative to financial assets. So it doesn't have much mind share. Um, and so I don't, I don't think it's really telling us all that much at this juncture. What, the, what prices are where they are because demand hasn't been all that, all that potent. But, you know, um, if you told me that today was a low in oil and by November it was going to be $85, I wouldn't argue with you. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I don't think the fact that last price of crude is 70 means that the next $10 are down. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. How about gold? Well, I'm bullish on gold because I'm bearish on these central banks. Their the right. central banks, they're incompetent. The currencies are all no good. The policies are wrongheaded. They're staffed by people who don't know what's going on. I mean, that's not to say they're not book smart, but they're just not, they're not market people and you can, their track record proves it. So I'm bullish on gold as an antidote to them and as an, and as, as an antidote to, you know, all this colored paper. Um, um, and, uh, I think gold has been, gold's been out of favor from a North American investor standpoint for, you know, quite some time. I think that, um, you know, the recent weakness, you know, could be coming to an end. A lot of times it gets weak in the quarter end. And a lot of times the June quarter end can be kind of the low for the year. I'm, um, you know, so I mean, I'm quite bullish on gold and silver, but if you'd asked me that two months ago, I would have told you the same thing and it's done nothing to go down in the last two months. So, yeah, yeah, right on. Uh, okay, Bill, uh, I, thanks for this update. It's really good to connect with you once again. Uh, you know, just always appreciate all your input and, uh, that you put out there and everything you do. And it's always a pleasure to have you on. I hope we can do it again. Uh, tell us people where they can find your work. And also, I think you're, you're also on Twitter at Fleckcap. So, but how yeah, much at, Fleck, at Fleckcap is my Twitter handle. My um, website is FleckensteinCapital.com. And I write a daily column, which I've been writing since 1995. Um, it's kind of changed because the world's changed. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I also answer questions for people. It's a paid site because I'm not going to do it for nothing, but I'm not trying to get rich either. It's only about 10 bucks a month. So, yeah. All right. Uh, Bill, have a, have a uh, happy 4th of July. Thanks so much for doing this. Okay, Trevor, take it easy. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.